0: It is a tremendous privilege to be with you, not just this morning, but over the coming months. Uh, I assure you, I don't take it lightly uh, when I am asked by the elders of a congregation uh, to step in in a situation where there are many transitions going on, I think by God's grace, He's taught me a lot of things over the years that have enabled me to serve well in uh, the two interim situations that I did full-time and in several others uh, before that when I was on the faculty at RTS full-time in Jackson and helping other congregations in those times in between and other things of training elders and uh, pastors in East Africa through uh, six three-week trips over the years. So. He's crammed a lot of things into me, and one of the things I long for uh, is just to remain humble before the Lord that if he's given me as many good teachers as he's given me over the decades, uh, hopefully I've learned a few things, but I know I've got so much more to learn, so I long to learn with you even as I help lead you through this season, this particular interim. Uh, and thus, um, I as I was interacting with your elders about what we might do in a first series of teaching the Word, which God has made so clear, it's to be very much at the center of who we are as the church, that we start out talking about God in his amazing providence uh, and the reality that one of the hardest things for us to learn is that God's providence uh, includes everything and that for those who are his, his providence is always good. That last phrase is not an easy phrase. Uh, I found myself uh, in tears flowing uh, during the beautiful song about his goodness this morning uh, as Mary and I had our first pregnancy end in a miscarriage where uh, uh, she saw the baby and a miscarriage, at least one in between each of the other three, uh, and yet I look back at how God used that in our ministry uh, of, of the other couples that we were able to come alongside. Uh, so I want us to step into a series, we'll do a couple of uh, side roads off of Genesis 37 through 50 in the coming weeks. Uh, even next week I want, uh, since we'll have a number away at the couple's retreat, to uh, Step into the Gospel of Luke and see Providence in that setting. But I have fallen in love with so many books in the Scripture, but the book of Genesis, my background is in literature and rhetorical theory uh, professionally at the graduate level. Uh, there is no more fascinating book, an incredibly artistic book in all of the Bible than the book of Genesis. It is so complex. Uh, so deep, so intricately woven that only God could have put it together. Uh, And I hope we can see something of uh, his goodness in that. And I think we best learn about God by listening to what God says above what all others say. And another time I'll tell you about how God drew me to himself in Christ. And at the heart of it was realizing that uh, given who Jesus obviously is once my eyes were opened, Nothing anyone else could ever say is as important as what Jesus says. Uh, so this morning, as we dig into this passage, after a few introductory comments, I hope you will keep uh, your Bible open, whether it's on your phone or your tablet or or in book form in your hand, because I'm going to walk us through this 37th chapter. as the main part of the message, setting in its own setting it in its own context and and applying it. But before we do any more, let me call upon the one who wrote it uh, that he might open our eyes and ears, our hearts, uh, uh, that he might work in us and in us as a congregation here at UPC. Let's pray. Father, you are Father in the biggest way we could ever think of that term. You are King over the universe, over us as individuals, families, over University Presbyterian. And as we seek to break open your word this morning, would you break us open, dig out our ears and give us the hearts of disciples uh, that the world might see Jesus more clearly because we've gathered together in this place and we look to you, to your word and your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Genesis, just a couple of quick questions to set it in context. Uh, When and through whom and for what immediate purpose did God give it? I think sometimes because Genesis speaks to us so much about creation, uh, we forget the context in which God gave it to his people. Uh, It was given to Moses during the Exodus. So the first audience for the book of Genesis were the people of God called out of 400 years of slavery uh, going into a whole new future, and they had no idea what it was going to look like. One of the fun and awful things sometimes about interims with pastoral changes is the the future. What is it going to look like? Uh, Well, this is a book that uh, is written to a people that didn't know what the future was going to look like, and it was written uh, that they might uh, understand who they were and where they came from and what their story really was. They'd had a 400-year story in Egypt, but that wasn't their story. They had been catechized by Egypt to be slaves, to be obedient to Pharaoh. And we, by the way, a quick aside, are being catechized by our cell phones and our tablets and our computers and all the other media, Uh, and it's kind of striking. I hope a new age is coming in the church where uh, churches that have turned away from the idea of adults and children needing to be catechized in the story of the scripture and in the best of our creeds and confessions are starting to wake up and realize we're being catechized by everybody else. Maybe we got to go back and figure out who we are. And I think that this book has a lot to teach us about that reality. Moses was given this text, and Moses had to grow in wisdom and stature. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us that uh, we who are elders and leaders and we who are the people of the church uh, need to grow. If, if the Son of God incarnate had to grow... As a human person in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, Uh, it shouldn't surprise us uh, that we don't come prepackaged as leaders and people uh, knowing how to do everything and how to respond to everything. So this series and this text will drive at the heart of some of that. I mean, think about it. Moses, 40 years getting schooled in the best schools of Egypt, and God says, not really a good enough education. Let's go out in the desert and be a shepherd for 40 years. And only then does he get another 40 years prepared to be a leader who stumbles along the way so much that he doesn't even get to go into the promised land. That doesn't fit a Hollywood story. That's that's not the kind of hero. And yet those are always the clay-footed leaders that the church has, that we will always be and that we need together to grow in to walk together and stand together and be faithful uh, together in spite of our frailties so moses had a pattern of growth that is similar to the lives of samuel israel's great priest and prophet leader and then in jesus uh, first samuel 226 now the boy samuel continued to grow in both stature and favor with the lord and also with man he had a tough tough job And then those same words, we've already quoted them, so I won't quote them again, are said of our Lord Jesus growing as a young child and a young man, that he grew, even though he was God incarnate. uh, He never sinned, but he still grew in wisdom, and he grew in stature, and he grew in favor with God and men, though sometimes not with men, because uh, uh, I hope you've noticed by this point in your life, whether you're a believer or one who's seeking, that Jesus is probably the greatest equal opportunity offender that has ever existed. Uh, I mean, if he doesn't offend you this week, wait a a week or two or three. If you're really listening to what he says, uh, he will shake up your world a little bit because it needs to be shaken. God was preparing Israel that they not be satisfied with being slaves and servants in a godless culture, even though when they were in the wilderness, they wanted to go back to that but they had to learn a new story. We'll see later how God's 10 words, the 10 commandments, uh, fit in with building this image of who they are as the people of God. But I simply want to remind you this morning that God uses all things, including our errors and wrong choices, uh, to shape us into being a community, whether it's in families or in churches. And the hard times, the most important things that happened in Israel's life, happened in the wilderness or in the desert and when things were going tough. When the promised land was good, they started going pagan. They started going native. So we ought to be thankful for an interim time like this, not that you wanted it to happen, uh, because it says God's about to do something really important and good. I mean, that's the pattern of the Scripture all the way through. David Wells, a great uh, theologian and writer of the last several decades, uh, Has given us uh, an incredible definition. Uh, He says, Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. If you want to know where you're tempted at being worldly rather than godly, look at the pressures in your life and in your teachers and in the media that would make righteousness look strange. We're in the middle of it in our culture right now. So this is a good season to begin to dig back into that reality. And I want to lay out one more foundational concept before I get us to the text. Uh, We'll come back to it over and over again. Uh, The first five books of the Old Testament are are called the Torah in Hebrew. Uh, We translate that word law, but in some ways, that's unfortunate, uh, because at the root of the idea of Torah is not just a, lit, a written legal code. It's the idea of instruction, of pointing the way. So rather than being a moral legal code, the Torah of God, the law of God, is relational. It's God shepherding through His Word, by His Spirit. It, it's God in his loving, mysterious at times, providence, leading us along to understand the need to walk with him. And I think often in the Western church especially, we've gotten so caught up on the law, even in our Presbyterian and Reformed tradition that I love deeply. uh, We get into the, the breaking of individual codes and commandments, which is a terrible thing to do, to break those commandments. But more foundational than the commandments is the rebellion that comes first. The rebellion is re- relational. The rebellion says, I don't want to trust God. I don't want to let God define what is, is right and wrong. I don't want to let God define what marriage is all about, what sex is all about. Uh, we see our world fighting against all of that, and the church has been led into finding righteousness looking strange at times. When we break individual commandments, those are only the particular ways that we rebel. And sometimes we think we're going to do okay if we can just quit breaking those particular commandments, and particularly the ones that are hardest for us, but we haven't gone back and said, have I really stopped being a rebel? And it's the issue of are we rebels or are we creatures? Francis Schaeffer, the great teacher of the second half of the 20th century, said to really become a Christian, you have to bow twice. You have to bow before Christ first as creator. Because if you try to bow before him as redeemer, that he might forgive your sins, but you haven't acknowledged that he, the son with the father and the spirit, are the definers of what everything is to be, what is good and what is bad, then sometimes you just want the psychological feeling of forgiveness and you're really not dealing with God. And I'm old enough now to have seen the evangelical church fall into that trap for 50 years of ministry. And it's why we so much need to come back and see the bigness of God. So Genesis is given to teach uh, the exiled people of Israel who they are, where they came from, how they got to Egypt, and the evil they must abandon as God literally deconstructs, decreates, Egypt. That's what those wonderful plagues, awful plagues, are. He's literally deconstructing a country so that the people who are being carried out of it towards the promised land, the land of promise, uh, can know that He is the one who is the Creator. And He defines what men and nations are to be and how long their seasons are to last. Acts chapter 17. So quickly, we move to the family that grew out of Jacob and how they are to grow in wisdom. And stature as far as possible to them to be in favor with God and man. Genesis is a book, and we can only briefly touch on this, that is broken into ten sections. The first talks about the generations of the heavens and earth. And that word, the generations of, always points to what comes next, not what came before. The first section is the heavens and the earth are made, and in them God put creatures. At the height of it, Adam and Eve. And what comes next in that section is that story. When we come to Genesis uh, 36, 37, and we move into the story of Jacob, it's often called the story of Joseph. If you're familiar with Genesis, you know a lot of the story tends to be about Joseph. But it's not really about Joseph. It's these are the generations of Jacob. And it's about Joseph and all of his brothers. Uh, And when it goes from the generations of Jacob, and all of a sudden you're talking about Joseph— Uh, If you're a part of that culture that was there in the desert with Moses, we're going, wait a minute. They have already been told the earlier chapters when they get to this. And which one in the 12 children of Jacob is Joseph? He's number 11. What happened to the first 10? What's going to happen to number 12? Why are we talking about Joseph? Well, we'll find out uh, as we dig into this text and uh, uh, those that we'll come into in the next weeks. But this is what happens as... The family of the third patriarch, Jacob, have to figure out how they're going to allow God's providence to lead them to live according to God's purposes. And sometimes they do it well, sometimes they do it badly. So it's the story of Jacob and his family. And in spite of Joseph's playing a critical role, he's even the savior from famine of his family and of Egypt. It's not the line of Rachel that Joseph is from that ends up being the prominent family. It's Leah's family that becomes the source of the Messianic line. And it's Judah, the fourth-born son, that becomes the lion of the tribe of Judah from which Jesus comes. So even though Joseph is in the foreground, the story is about how does this family operate as a family. And I hope maybe some of you are sensing already uh, some of our application is going to be there. Uh, How does the family of UPC operate as a family? How do the families within UPC operate in a family? And how is God's providence at work in these relationships, both individual families, individuals, and the church, that we might know how to live and how to be what we need to be? You had an example of it in the song, In in God's Hands. When circumstances come... uh, I was going to quote it later but my friend Steve Brown that I've known since I was a ruling elder with him in Boston back in the late 60s early 70s uh, has often said if you think you know what God's doing in your life right now you're probably wrong if you think you know what God's doing in your life right now you're probably wrong but part of trusting in his providence and and in waiting waiting on God is when those hard times come we lean in we say okay God I can't handle this. I'm not in control of this. Teach me through it. And no matter what you're going through as an individual, how you view what your church is going through, uh, God has not taken his hand off of his people. That's the beautiful, beautiful reality. So the preceding thoughts are why, as your interim senior pastor, uh, I'm going to preach on God's providence. Uh, The circumstances you're in, staff changes, a pandemic, the combined uncertainties, are no uh, surprise to God. Uh, And I simply, though we'll talk more about it in detail, want to make a proclamation to you. God is not surprised by any of this. And it is a great privilege for you to go through this time. You may not have come to that point where you see it that way yet. uh, But some churches never get the privilege of having to slow down and back up and say, Who are we? How did we become who we are How did the really good things work with the previous pastors and their relationships with the elders and and the people? Uh, What didn't work? How do we figure some of this out so that we don't just roll the dice when we call the next senior pastor, but we have a better idea who we are and what we need to learn and how all of that fits together? Uh, So you will either really like me or you'll think that I'm an equal opportunity offender Uh, because I'm here to love on your elders. I love them already you know, I've been privileged to be in on quite a number of Zoom calls and, and phone calls, and I love how they're seeking to respond to all of these things, but they've got a lot of things to learn. You've got a lot of things to learn. I don't know it all, but I'm here to walk with you out of some of the background, and I do what I call an intentional interim. I didn't come up with the term. A few of you may know of my friend Sandy Wilson's ministry. He was at Second Pres Memphis, and Lookout Mountain Pres and chattanooga before that but sandy does the same thing as we're now in our later years of ministry Uh, and it means we're not a stopgap, but we come in not only to pastor and shepherd uh, but to help a church look at the big picture to help the search committee when it's formed and we'll talk more about that Uh, figure out how to, to make the best use of this time so that's just a teaser in the midst of things but let me move us into the the text lest i get us way, way behind from where uh, I want to be. Uh, The reality you are in is you have no choice but to wait for what comes. But I remind you of Psalm 40, verse 1, which in the Hebrew seems like it's almost stuttering. Uh, It says, in waiting, I waited on the Lord. Human beings have no choice but to wait. When you're waiting on the outcome of a surgery, when you're dealing with other things that you're confronting and you don't know what's going to happen with it, uh, you can be like non-believers and just tap your feet because you, do, you can't do anything but wait to see what happens. But as believers, we don't do that. In waiting, we wait on the Lord. And as we look at the life of Joseph and his family's experience, Jacob's family's experience, we're going to be looking at ways in which they didn't and did wait on the Lord. And how God's sanctification process in them was a lot more than about making Joseph second in command in Egypt. It was about how the line of Jacob could become better image bearers as a family of a patriarch. And it feeds into the rest of the scripture. Let me leave it uh, at that at this point. Other than to simply say uh, one thing. Well in fact, let's just dig into the text and, and we'll say it there. If you get your Bible open, I'm gonna to try to walk uh, fast. Uh, Steve, Stephen, what time do I need to finish? I can barely see the clock down here. Twelve <laughs> thirty? No. That's possible, but not uh not something I wanna do. What time do I need to finish? You're the boss. Eleven fifteen at the latest. Okay, we'll we'll shoot we'll shoot for that. Maybe we can can do it before that. Uh, I've been known to just stop at the end of a paragraph and say, we'll pick it up next week. So don't worry about me doing what Paul did and preaching towards midnight uh, till midnight. Uh, uh, We won't go there. But but get your Bible open. I want to walk you through this text and give you some context before we make two or three applications that we've kind of leaned into a little bit. Genesis 37, beginning with verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning. Uh, If you'd read the chapters before closely, you'd know that was the area called Hebron or Kiriath Arba uh, in the land of Canaan. But the new section begins in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. In other words, what's coming after this is what happens with those that come out of Jacob's loins, his children, and what happens through his children. Jacob's still involved in the story. But we're not talking just about Jacob, we're talking about Jacob's family. These are the generations of Jacob, and then immediately Joseph, being 17 years old, and I assure you that those who were really listening as God gave Moses chapters 1 through 36, when all of a sudden it starts talking about Joseph, they already know Joseph is the 11th, the firstborn of Rachel. But There are ten in front of him, and firstborn kids are really important in the story, uh, in the culture, the way things usually are, though God turns that topsy-turvy. So Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and remember, those were the two servants of Leah and Rachel that they gave as wives Uh, to Jacob when they couldn't have children yet. Uh, Because as part of the normal culture, uh, that's what was done. So don't get hung up on where we are at this point in God's revelation. You know, that's what happened. Uh, So Joseph, because he's so young, because Rachel had her first child, Joseph, late, uh, he's growing up with these kids uh, of the former servants who become the wives uh, of Jacob. Uh, along with Leah and Rachel. And if you don't know the Leah and Rachel story, go back and read the chapters before it will really help you understand what's happening and what we're talking about. Uh, So he was a boy with his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. What's the first thing we hear about Joseph? He's bringing a bad report about his brothers to his father. He's one of the youngest in the family, but he's already... The boss in his eyes and he's the one that gets to tell his father what's going on and what's right and wrong. Some commentators look at the Joseph story as if uh, Joseph is the one hero that's never really criticized. I think it's our individualistic way of looking at the story that causes us to see that Joseph has a lot of growing in wisdom and stature yet to do. Uh, he's not The hero from the small town who goes to the big city and succeeds and becomes the savior of his family. That's true. He is that. But that's our Western culture story. This is a story about a family with God's third patriarch who's to to do things right. Adam fouled it up. Noah fouled it up. Now Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are each not to foul it up. But that wasn't exactly the way the story unfolded. So, He brings a bad report. Uh, So listen to the text with the eyes of those that are first hearing it. Covenant, group-oriented, collective ears instead of our more Western individualistic eyes and ears. Now Israel, remember, Jacob is also called Israel by God. Same person, Israel Jacob, is a patriarch, a father with responsibilities over a whole clan of sons and servants. He has a calling and a job to do. Those who first hear this text taught by Moses understand that we don't we in our culture hear the word father and we think oh a father has a wife hopefully she's still in the home with him and he with her Uh, they have some kids and that's the family that's what fathering is all about but if you go back to Abraham just as an example and I can only touch on it uh, when Abraham is traveling from Ur the Chaldees and then uh, from his father Terah you know on the rest of the journey after his father dies He's got quite a clan. And and then when his nephew Lot uh, becomes a great clan, he's the father, he's the patron, patriarch over all of these people. He's got a responsibility uh, to try to guide them and see that they do well. So immediately the hearers that are learning this story from Moses understand, oh, how's Jacob, Israel, doing in his fathering? And I'll give you a clue. Not very well. And that's one of the things we need to look about and then say, how are we doing as fathers, those of us who are fathers? How are the elders of the church doing as that? How are pastors dealing with that? So here it says about, now Israel loved Joseph, verse 3, more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. It's understandable. If you know the story of how uh, Jacob got tricked by Laban and, and got Leah first that he wasn't attracted to, and then had to uh, take Rachel second, and then God gave Rachel no children, but Leah gets children, and there's this huge tension between the two wives, and then we got four wives. You know, when we get uh, the other two uh, that we've talked about involved, uh, so it's understandable that he loves. Jacob so much because he loved Rachel so much and Hebrew narrative is very terse very sparse of language and so notice how it goes that he was the son of his old age and then it jumps immediately and he made him a robe of many colors we don't know exactly what that means but there's enough from the culture that we've been able to pick up that it's a long robe sometimes the robes were uh, made up like a patchwork of many colors But the important thing to know about it, it was a robe of honor. And it was a symbol that said to the younger or to the older brothers, "Uh uh-oh, he not only really likes Joseph better than us, he's going to make him, not Reuben, the firstborn, the heir. That is a big deal. Because the one who is the heir gets sometimes as much as two-thirds of the inheritance. Now, why does he get that? So that everybody else can be poor and he can be rich? No, he gets that because he's taking over as the father. And his job is to make sure everybody gets treated well. So how are Joseph's brothers seeing Joseph behave? Let's look at the text. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This thing had gone down the road a ways. They're thinking, all of our futures depend on this young one? Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. You can just imagine this bright-faced young guy, one of the younger brothers, coming like, this is really cool. Here's this dream that I had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. How does he think they're going to hear that story? And behold, your sheaves, uh, uh, you're gathered around it, bowed down before my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Note, it's not just the dreams. And let me ask you one other question. Has the text told us, has Moses told us that the dream was from God? No. I'm not telling you the dream's not from God. I'm saying, listen to the words of the text. Joseph's not been told for sure this is from God. Jacob doesn't know for sure it's from God. The brothers certainly don't want it to be from God. And so they hate him not only for the dream, but for the fact that he says the words. Now we find out that God's involved in the dream later on in the story, but in waiting, wait on God. God's going to tell you what's going on at the appropriate time, but don't get ahead of the story. We would, in uh, the scholarly language of our day, say that Joseph lacked uh, emotional intelligence he may have been a very bright young man he obviously was but he need little he knew little about how to rise in favor with men and God wasn't real pleased with his behavior I don't think either so his brothers were jealous of him oh I gotta get I lost my place we got to do the second dream so then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brother. Brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? So here it's not just the brothers, but the father, Jacob, Israel, sees some of the weaknesses of his son's character. What they foreshadow, we and Joseph discover only much later. But in the moment, these words are very troubling. And his brothers were jealous of him. But the father wondered. The father kept the sayings in mind. Now back to what was read earlier. Now his brothers, verse 12, went to, the past, went to pasture uh, their brothers, uh, father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send them to you. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers with the flock, and bring me word. So Joseph is responsive to his father. That's really good. But was Jacob wise to send his younger son out to do this, knowing the relationships of the brothers? I think the clear answer is no. Jacob would not be looked on by the hearers of this text as a wise father for putting Joseph in that position, sending him out as sort of in charge to bring back a report on the older brothers. What are they supposed to think, given the kind of reports he's been given on the younger brothers? And a man found Joseph wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, They've gone astray, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and behold, before he came near to them, They conspired against him to kill him. I told you the language was sparse in Hebrew narrative. We've gone from anger and hatred at his words to when they see him and they're out away from the father, this is our time to get rid of him. So that Reuben can take over as the firstborn and things can be better for us, we know that we'll get part of the money for our wives and our children and Jacob's family will be run well in the future. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn. He's the one that, in the culture's eyes, should be taking over when Joseph gets old and when he dies. And so he's actually carrying out what Jacob ought to be doing. He's protecting his father, even though uh, he's upset probably with Joseph too. But you need to know something else that happened a couple of chapters before. Reuben lay with Bilhah, Rachel's former servant, and the wife of Leah. He shamed Jacob by sleeping with one of his father's wives. He was not in favor with God or with men. And so we see maybe a little bit of repentance going on in Reuben's life, that maybe I can respect my father more and protect Joseph even though I don't like the way that he's behaving. You see how much more is going on in this story once you begin to think about what's really happening with this family. It's assumed by the culture. But from our culture, we don't see it in the text unless we slow down and look at it. So Reuben is somewhat repentant, cares for his father, wants to honor his father's desires. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So they're protecting him. They're not going to drown him. Uh, uh, He's at least safe for the moment. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, he's the fourth born, who alone of the top four has not yet dishonored his father. By the way, I didn't fill you in on number two and three, did I? Uh, Reuben's the first born, Simeon and Levi are the second and third born, and when Dinah, their sister, got raped, but the Shechemites wanted to have her become the princess of the prince of the Shechemites, uh, Simeon and Levi take it upon themselves to scheme and trick them and murder everybody in the village and make Jacob's name a stench uh, in, in the whole area. So Reuben's in trouble on getting the inheritance. Simeon and Levi are in trouble on getting the inheritance. And at least Reuben's turning around a little bit, but now Jude is at least trying to help a little bit. But his idea of helping is, well, maybe I can keep him from killing him if we sell him and send him to Egypt. I mean, that's a little bit good, at least. Uh, Verse 26, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to the brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Reuben the repentant has failed, shamed again before his father over the loss now of his father's most beloved son. He shamed him with one of his wives, now he shamed him Because he, the firstborn, who should be responsible, has managed to lose Joseph to them. Joseph is gone. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify. Remember that phrase. It'll come up in the next chapter, which we may not get to for two or three weeks uh, with the couples conference next week and the anniversary. I think I'm going to do something different. But... I can't wait to get to chapter 38, the chapter everybody skips in the Joseph story. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, read it this afternoon. Um, But uh, this we found, please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And Joseph identifies it and says, it is my son's robe, a fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces. So I don't know who came up with this idea of the bloody robe and the scheme to tell him what happened uh, but it fools his father, and, uh, and you need to remember what happened to Jacob in his earlier life. Uh, his mother, Rebekah, schemed with him to fool his brother Esau and his father Isaac uh, so that he could get the birthright uh, and, and be the leader of the line. So what comes around, or what goes around comes around, you know, there we are. Uh, and then Jacob tore his garments, put on, puts on sackcloth and, his, and loins, mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. What's he saying? My life's over. Joseph's gone. He was my hope. My dream was that Rachel's first, firstborn would be the leader of, of everything, you know, and now he's gone. Woe is me, I'm going to die. It's like David, when his army saves him from his son Absalom, starts crying out, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, and has to have one of uh, his helpers, his prophets amongst him, come and shame him and saying, You're shaming all those who risked their lives for you, David, because you're more concerned about the one you've lost than all the ones you still have who've given you life. So if you want to think Jacob is looking good in this story, and it's not still about Jacob, uh, God is hammering here that Jacob has really got things backwards. Okay, need to bring this all to a quick close. I'm past my eleven fifteen, Steve, but I will I will wrap us up. So the people of Israel coming out of Egypt are hearing all of this and saying, "Wow, what a heritage! It's both wonderful and it's awful." You know, and now Moses is leaving this. But they're learning their story. And so I I want you to think about what's your story. Some of you have been at UPC just for a short time, some for a long time. Uh, But if you're here for the reasons that God led you here, you know you're part of the gospel story. Uh, And and when churches go through difficult times, God always, I really believe it if people are responsive, enriches that gospel story. Uh, And they come out the stronger for it. And they have the best relationships amongst the leadership if they do it with intentionality that they've ever had in the history of the church. And I'm sure there have been great times in that. I don't know enough yet. Please don't ever assume uh, that I'm making a comment about this person or that person. I'll spend a lot of time the next two months talking to scores of you. Uh, But I'm not speaking to specifics right now. I'm just saying, uh, this is life. This is the way things are. This is the way the world works. It's the way the, the church works. But we need to know our story because if we don't know our story, we don't know how to rehearse it and stay alive and vital in the midst of it. Uh, Paul Tripp wrote, "The Christian counselor, teacher, you and I don't live in a series of big dramatic moments. We don't careen from big decision to big decision. We all live in an endless series of little moments. The character of a life isn't set in 10 big moments. The character of a life is set in 10,000 little moments of everyday life. It's the themes of struggles that emerge from those little moments that reveal what's really going on in our hearts. So it's these little moments in the lives of Jacob and Joseph and his brothers that I want you to look at. And and then I want to look at the little moments that are confronting you uh, as you think about how am I responding to my husband, to my wife, uh, to my parents? When it comes to things about the church, how am I responding? Do I really see that my calling is not just to be a great Western American Christian individual and maybe become one of the heroes, but it's How do I be one that builds up all the people around me, whether it's just in my family? I mean, I'll rebuke myself. I think I've done a better job during much of my ministry of of building up the pastoral staff that I had, that I wanted them to thrive. I wanted the congregation to see them as the heroes than sometimes I did with my own kids. And now I'm trying to play makeup. Pray, Pray for me on that. I mean, none of us get it right but all of these things are what, when a season like this comes, and it's time to, to do some introspecting, to realize that the hand of God, the providence of God, is on us to prod us and move us uh, to respond well in the present circumstances. It's not time uh, to live in the past. It's time to live in the present and help the present prepare us for the future. This interim time is part of Jesus active providence to make UPC an even more beautiful church. And I'll say it the way I began. Uh, There is no greater privilege than for me to try to be a humble servant alongside you and learn as much from you as you will learn from me if together we can learn to be uh, some of the neatest things that are going to happen for the future of this congregation. I hope you will believe that. I believe it with all my heart. I've seen it. I've seen the last two long-term interims I did uh, uh, full-time uh, go from uh, really difficult pastoral leavings to the places where uh, the session and the pastoral staff and uh, other people in the church are having the times of their life that they had longed for. And I'm painting no picture on you guys. I don't know enough. I'm just telling you what I know is possible and how to move from where you are when there's been uncertainty and shakeup uh, into beautiful things. In God's hands, we are. Father, take these words. Use them your way in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.